0: And again, we're still, we've, we've been several months in Romans and we're still in chapter one. <laughs> and, uh, but I think you can tell by the density of the information and sometimes by the complexity perhaps of the information that it's worth slowing down and taking a good look before we pick up pace and move ahead. And so... Uh, I I don't apologize for going slowly, though I like to tease myself about that. I had initially intended to do uh, about six verses today, and then I chopped it down because that's crazy. So we're just going to (laughs) cover through verse 20 today. So Paul is transitioning at this point. He has introduced himself. He's introduced the book. He has introduced his argument, what he's going to be talking about. He has greeted the people and all of those things. And now he transitions into the argument proper. We talked last week about verses 16 and two weeks ago, about verses 16 and 17, about that being the theme of the entire letter, that in there we have condensed the message that we're going to be getting throughout the rest of the book of Romans in those verses there. And now in verse 18 in particular, he transitions and he states what is his theme for the next few chapters this is going to be his theme all the way up through chapter 3 and verse 20 and that is that all people are guilty before God they are accountable to him they have not measured up nor do they have any way on their own to do so and so that's the argument he's making for the next several chapters he summarizes that here in verse 18 and then he's going to begin to build his argument he's making clear to his readers that all people are accountable to him and all people are guilty before him. And so you can see that there's some, some weight to this next section, that the next couple of chapters could be pretty heavy, not only, not only dense and not only perhaps complicated or, uh, or deep topics we perhaps don't often think about, but at the same time, it's bad news about us again and again. And so um, buckle up for that. But I want to read a few verses this morning. I want to start back at uh, chapter 1 of verse 16 so we can remind ourselves where we're going in the overall book. And then when we hit verse 18, we will be reminded of where we're going in the next couple of chapters. So read with me, if you would, from Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to Your Word today. And we long to know what is written here. To understand it to understand it rightly and to understand what it means for me and so father I pray that you would help us to put out of our minds for the time being what is gone before this week the things that perhaps were distracting were that would linger in our minds and capture our attention so that we would be focused on something else take those things and remove them I pray For the next few minutes, I pray that we would be able to focus here and now on what You have written for us in Your Word. I pray also that You would help us not to be focused on what comes later, maybe busyness later in the day or this week or anticipation of something upcoming or uh, anxieties. Help us to set those things aside. Father, we want to listen to Your Word this morning. And so I pray that You, by Your Spirit, would work In our hearts. I pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in the proclamation of your word, something you have ordained. This gathering together, this worshiping you this way, this proclamation of the word is something you have told us to do. And so we ask that you would work, that you would work in our hearts, that you would work in our church, that you would work in our community, in our families, that you would work in our world. Father, we trust you, and we trust you. As we find you in your word, help us to understand you aright. Help us to worship you as we ought to, to worship you as we find you in your word and not some figment of our imagination or some way we would rather you were. So speak to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's springtime and it's beautiful outside. And it's getting more beautiful. We still had frost on the window this morning, but that'll pass soon enough. And here we are in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be talking about the wrath of God. But the wrath of God, first of all, the Bible talks about it, and so we need to study it. And it's important for us to know, not just because God has told us about it in His Word, but because it's important for our very lives to understand better, who we are, who God is, what Christ has done. And so we're going to talk about God's Word. We're going to talk about the wrath of God that we find written about in God's Word. Now, I want to help us to understand why it's important for us to understand this, why it's important for us even to focus for the next couple of chapters on the dark side of this information of the, tr- the bad news about us. And that's, you know, I, I reflect back on buying, shopping for an engagement ring and buying a diamond, right? And every person who has ever gone shopping for diamonds knows what happens next. You, you look at some and you talk about shape and the seas the and all that kind of stuff. And then they pull out this black piece of velvet. And then they put the diamond on the black piece of velvet. And suddenly that black background... Does Something to that diamond It doesn't change the diamond at all. I mean the diamond is beautiful in itself and it has all the facets and the beauty and all of that uh, clarity and all that stuff within the diamond itself. But with if you were to hold it like this. It would look great, but not quite like when you put it in its proper place with that dark background that absorbs light and lets the the light uh, reflect and refract and all that kind of stuff from the diamond itself. It's that background. That, that makes the beauty of the diamond pop and come out. And that is sort of what we're talking about today. It's the backdrop. It's the necessary backdrop to the gospel. Paul has told us where we're going. We read in verses 16 and 17. He's all about the gospel. He wants to proclaim the gospel. He's rejoicing in that. He's celebrating that. He's looking forward to getting there. But first you've got to lay out that little black mat. You've got to understand why the gospel is so important. You've got to understand what it is makes the gospel so beautiful. If you were to examine the gospel on its own, it's beautiful. But you don't quite get the full picture until you put it against its proper backdrop. Without the backdrop of God's wrath against sin, the gospel makes less sense. The less we feel the gravity and the truth of God's wrath, the less we are able to recognize the profound grace of God found in the gospel. The wrath of God is what makes the gospel necessary for us. And so for the person who really doesn't like that backdrop and would just rather remove it and never look at it, never examine it, never never talk about it when it comes up in Scripture... You have removed the appropriate backdrop which makes the truth and the beauty of the gospel pop and make sense and be the glorious thing that it is. Our main point for our passage today is that the righteous wrath of God revealed against sinful mankind is the crucial backdrop for the gospel. I often say when I'm talking about Uh, evangelism and i'm talking about sharing the gospel with someone i often say that the hardest part about getting someone saved is getting them lost you've heard me say that before but it's true if we don't think about we don't understand the true plight that we are in someone coming to you and saying jesus loves you or jesus saves doesn't quite carry the same weight R.C. Sproul tells the story of when he was still an unbeliever and he was on a college campus and a uh, young Christian man came up to him and said, are you saved? And R.C. said, saved from what? There was no context. And so we need that context. We need to know, we need to understand our plight, our true plight And then, when we understand that, when we understand the bad news, then the good news of the gospel will be all the more glorious for us. And so, that's our task today. And so, we move into our passage and we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. By the way, we've read those words before, revealed. Look at verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's the exact same word, revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Something I want to note about, notice about this, first of all, is that wrath is a present reality. It's not just a future thing. It is a present reality. Just in the same way as he said, the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. In the gospel, the, the righteousness of God is revealed currently, presently, present tense. He uses the exact same form of the exact same word to say that the wrath of God is revealed. Now, it's ongoing. Often when we think about the wrath of God, probably we think about Judgment Day. We think about the end. We think about when God is finally going to render judgment upon sinful people at the end. And there will be judgment. And there will be wrath. And there will be just what you think at that time. But the wrath of God is also currently being revealed. We see it around us. We see it in culture around us. We see it in our world. Around us. And this passage is going to talk about in what ways that wrath is revealed. And there's something ironic, perhaps, in the way that wrath is revealed. Part of the revelation of God's wrath is that He gives sinful humanity over to become even more sinful. So that part of His wrath against someone is to let them pursue that course that they really want to pursue. That's a sign of God's wrath. That's not a sign of the winner of the, of the sinner winning against God and somehow getting his way and tricking God. And why does the sinner get to continue in sin and go into worse and worse sin? Well, one aspect is it's judgment. It's the wrath of God being revealed against that person as they continue to rack up a worse and worse situation for themselves. The debt for their own sin is greater and greater and greater. So wrath is a present reality. Wrath is God's response to sin. He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Some commentators want to talk about the differences between ungodliness and unrighteousness. And they will say that ungodliness has to do with a religious uh, type of disobedience, meaning idolatry. They go into idolatry, so they're worshiping something they shouldn't be worshiping. And then uh, the, uh, the unrighteousness has to do with morality, meaning they're disobeying God and their morals. And that's certainly true. I don't disagree with that. But I think he's trying to sum up all of sin in those categories. Broadly speaking, we can put all types of sin in a religious category, religious sin, idolatry, and then in a moral category. I think he's, he's trying to sum up the whole thing under one heading. We might rather not speak about God's wrath. But the Bible does, and so we will as well. And so, though we might not even want to believe in the wrath of God. I know some don't. Some people would set that aside and say that the wrath of God is inconsistent, With the love of God. And God can't be self-contradictory in himself. And so one has to go. And of course, God's a loving God. So the wrath goes out the window. He must not really have wrath. He must not really be a wrathful God. But the Bible says that indeed he is. The Bible affirms he's also loving. But he has wrath. And it's here revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what is wrath? is God throwing a fit that seems wrathful but a fit is irrational and it's it's uncontrolled and it's it's something a, a child does because they can't get their way so that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the wrath of God the wrath of God is rooted in his own character wrath is what happens when God's righteousness is offended Anytime his character is offended against, the, the, the automatic response is wrath. It's an active response of judgment, of that thing which came against, which offended, which insulted, which, which offended his character. That's the wrath of God. It's an active outpouring of his furious displeasure at the sinfulness of creatures. Wrath is God's response to Sin. But Paul has a specific sin in mind. He's, he's talking about, uh, he says, His wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. Wrath is God's response to suppression of truth. I know you've got one blank there. right? real small. <laughs> wrath is God's response to suppression of truth the idea of suppression that word can be translated a few different ways but the idea is hindering something holding it back pushing it down to suppress means to push down I I often use the example of being in a swimming pool and and taking a, a basketball or a beach ball or something and and if the ball is too big you can't even push it under the water But imagine a ball that's right at your capacity. And you can push it under the water and you're sort of balanced up on top of the water. You're holding it under. That's suppression. You're holding it down. Now, if you push it down and get it all the way under the water, can you let it go and it stay there? comes right back up. Right? It comes right back up and smacks you in the face. You're, You're having to suppress it. Hold it down actively. Or imagine a spring... Springs are made out of a special kind of steel, and I don't know anything about that stuff, but it, it's spring steel. It bounces back. So you imagine a spring that's at the maximum capacity of what you could push down, right? You push it down push it down to where it's completely collapsed. Is it all done? Can you let it go? No, it springs. It comes back. You have to suppress it. You have to continue hindering it. And that's what's going on here. That's the idea of, of suppression and Paul says the wrath of God is revealed against those who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. They're holding down the truth. They're holding it underwater. They're using their, all their force, all their might to hold it under the water. And if, they, if, they, if, they don't, if they're not careful, if they don't pay attention at some time, it pops up. And it's going it's to come up out of the water, and it's gonna, but they'll push it back down again. That's that idea of suppression and God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what do men do? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're holding down that truth. Our next point, we're going to talk about what that truth is, but suffice it to say at this point that God has revealed things to them. They have learned those things and they don't like them. So they hold them under water. That's the suppression of truth. And look at our passage. Who does this? Everybody. Natural man. The people who suppress the truth are exactly the same people who are ungodly and unrighteous. Paul's going to spend a couple of chapters explaining very, very clearly that is every individual is ungodly and unrighteous, guilty before God. And so the wrath of God is God's response to suppression of truth. But how can Paul say that mankind is suppressing the truth? What, what truth do they have that they're suppressing? Well, God's, Paul says that God has revealed himself to everyone. We continue reading in our passage, verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. He's revealed himself to everyone and so everyone knows of God. Everyone knows of God. It's plain to them. He said it's it's plain to them. We say as plain as the nose on my face. It's right there. Everybody has this. It is plain to them. It's not just some truth that uh, maybe some ultra-genius uh, philosopher has buried away in his Ph.D. dissertation somewhere that he, he knows that there's a God. He discovered it in, in his philosophy work. It's not, it's not just in that situation. It's not some, some scientist in his laboratory in some notes came across, wow, there really is a God and it's buried away for smart people with PhDs and and who, who love to think. No, this is for everybody. Everybody has this knowledge that is plain to them for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to whom? It's plain to those who suppress the truth. Who suppresses the truth? Everyone who's ungodly and unrighteous. Everybody. That's the state of natural man. Suppressing this truth and so it's, it's available, it's readily available. He's made it plain to them. Everybody knows God, and everybody knows God because God has shown them. He himself has shown them. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, sometimes when I teach and I see that far-off look in, in someone's eyes, I know I've, I've messed up somewhere. I lost them, right? Right? I didn't teach what I should have taught because if the student didn't learn it, the teacher didn't teach it, right? Well, that's true of me. It's not true of God. When God teaches, the teaching is done. And any flaw is on the part of the student. And look what this student does. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He has made it plain. He has taught them. And they suppressed it. It's not that they lack information, it's that they hold down the information they have. And that's the problem we find ourselves in. So, where's the disconnect? If God has done this teaching, and if if what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, if that's true, and it's true, where's the disconnect? because when we walk out this door we go about our lives we're going to run into people who suppress it we're going to run into people who don't know about God they say they believe they don't know God what's the problem the problem is not that the teacher didn't teach the problem is not that they don't have the truth the problem is the truth they have they're holding under water People suppress the truth that they do have. God has shown them. He has made it plain to them. And how has He done this? Well, He's done this because creation is a revelation. Creation itself is a revelation. Look at what He says in in, uh, the first part of verse 20 there. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made creation itself is like a laboratory it's like a classroom and god has used creation to teach everyone who is in creation truths about him they know it creation itself is revelation and he says what can be known about god is plain to them what can be known about god what can we learn about god from his creation well, there are people who do a lot of natural theology and, and uh, they themselves are theologians of a sort. They do natural theology and they observe uh, how the created order works and they make deductions about what God is like and all that kind of stuff. And that's not exactly what I'm talking about because they, it can get pretty elaborate. When you, if you read anybody who does natural theology, they make all kinds of conclusions that I don't know how they got there, but they didn't get there uh, from creation itself. But what can be known about God? From creation, Well, Paul tells us. We don't have to imagine. He says His eternal power and divine nature is known from creation. His eternal power and divine nature. We look at the world around us. We observe. We feel. We're in contact with the world around us. Something had to have made all this stuff. It had to have come from somewhere. And that something that made all this stuff had has to exist outside of this creation in order to have made it. That's simple. Something out there had to have made what we have here. He's outside of time. He's eternal. He's outside of this thing that we experience. He's eternal. And the Creator has to be powerful enough to make the things that we see. If you get a microscope and look deep within the human body and look how cells work and all that all that kind of... You imagine that. You, you look at that. Well, that takes... That takes exquisite precision. And then look at Mount Everest. And since that's a tiny thing, look at uh, the galaxies. God is powerful enough to have made all of those things. He, you can learn about His eternal power from looking at creation. And He made us. He's powerful. He's eternal. And so we, the creation, what do we owe Him? Everything worship loyalty obedience the next breath we take that's what we owe him all this stuff is observable within creation creation also testifies to his divine nature or his deity or his his godness We can see that he's wise enough to make those subatomic particles and and to make your DNA work and all of that kind of stuff. He's he's wise enough to make systems work so that when you get a cut, your body heals itself. You can see God's wisdom. We can learn that about him. We can uh, learn about him when we think about water and what happens with evaporation and, and snow and redistribution of water and purification and all of that kind of stuff. It takes wisdom from God. We recognize a, a common sense of justice in the world amongst people. Now, we may define that a little bit differently. We have different rules for exactly perhaps what fair is or what just is. If you go to different cultures and you go to uh, different times in the world, you might, you might see some changes. But the, the fact is we all have a category for justice and for fairness And for rightness, the particulars might not line up, but those categories are there. And so they reveal to us that there is a God who is just, who himself is righteous. And we could go on and we could continue making some points. But uh, the point is that God has shown all of us certain things about himself and his creation. And what have we done with that truth? It's not that we didn't learn it. It's plain It's that we want to dispose of it. Another translation of that word suppress, it can be incarcerate. We want to lock that truth up and throw away the key. We suppress it. And the result is that God has left all mankind without any Excuse. Look how he concludes all of that. In verse 20, uh, he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. That's a tough place to be when you're without excuse. When you get caught doing something. Remember as a child, mom would, you know, it's like the hand in the cookie jar thing. Like, what are you doing? Uh, well, guess i was stealing cookies <laughs> right without excuse we have no excuse there is no excuse for those who have never heard the question always comes up what about the person living in some faraway place who's never heard of christ what about that person surely that guy has an excuse because he never heard i mean here we live in the states and we hear the name of christ all the time even i who who grew up Not hearing the gospel. I still knew about Jesus. I still knew about Christians and I knew about Easter and some things like that. I wasn't utterly ignorant, though I was pretty ignorant. But there are places where the name Jesus Christ, the Bible, that stuff has never been heard. What about that guy? What about those people living there? Well, does he have an excuse? He has access to genuine revelation what we call general revelation, just like everyone else does. He has access to this created uh, world that we live in. He senses and experiences the same things we do. He observes the same things about creation that we do. Maybe not to the level of detail because they don't have, you know, the the microscopes or telescopes or whatever. But still, the observation of creation is still there. And creation is general and genuine revelation, even of who God is from creation. That's the argument that Paul is making. And what has this guy done? This proverbial person who lives in this place who has never heard. And there are people who have never heard. What about them? What do they do with that truth? They suppress it. They suppress it. They don't want that truth. They don't want to follow that truth. They they want to incarcerate that truth. They want to hold it down and squish it down like that spring so it no longer looks like a spring. They want to hold it underwater so that you look across the surface of the water and not see the ball. Meanwhile, they're straining to hold it under there. That's what they do, just like all natural man does. Reject the truth that has already been received. See, the problem is not ignorance. The problem is not a lack of information. The problem is a suppression of that information, a suppression of that truth. And so even when we think about the person who has never heard God has revealed certain things about himself to that person and the response has been rejection. What will be the response to further revelation? Further rejection. They're already accountable. They're already accountable. Now, I believe in missions. I was a missionary. I believe in taking the gospel to places where the gospel has not been taken. I believe that God saves through the gospel in people's lives. I believe he draws people to himself and he redeems them. But the natural man who, does never, who never hears, the man who lived in China at the time of David, is accountable. We're all accountable because all have access to creation. There is no excuse for the one who's never heard. Likewise, there is no excuse for those that we evangelize. When we take the gospel to someone, the issue is not they don't have the right information. They need the information, but the issue, the deep down root of the problem is they suppress the information they already have. And that suppression can look different ways. We're going to talk that, about that a little bit in uh, the next point, but th- the issue is not information. And I, I have been distracted by this. My, I, have a, I have a problem. Hi, my name is Brennan. I have a problem. I love to answer questions. And the harder the question, the better, particularly about the Bible, about other stuff I don't really care all that much about. But a hard question about the Bible will make me work at it harder. It will make me study. I want to give a good answer. And so when someone asks a question I know the answer to, my natural response is give them the answer, even if it completely derails the conversation. And so I recall very clearly I was on the street. Uh, in Chicago. We were a team of, of uh, people sharing the gospel on the streets, and we were talking with this guy who was an attorney. is well-educated, smart guy, dressed well, and all that stuff. And we're sharing the gospel, and we start talking about the Bible says, and the Bible says, and, and he asked this question about, yeah, but, you know, can we really trust the Bible? Because after all, there are, you know, differences in the manuscripts and, and all this kind of stuff. Well, I had just finished a master's degree that dealt heavily with that topic, right? I have reams of information in my brain about this stuff that I would, and I'm an, I'm a question answerer. So my natural response was, well, let me tell you. I have a nine point outline to explain to you why I do, you don't have to worry about that while we're standing on the streets in Chicago sharing the gospel with this guy at a bus stop or whatever, right? And so I start going through my outline and I start giving him all the points and I'm, I start answering. Well, I got all the way through. Did he believe? found another objection found another objection that's something that that we need to understand when we're sharing the gospel with someone we need to have answers to things but the underlying problem the main root core problem is not this objection that the person raised because very often you can answer that objection and you can answer that objection well and another objection will pop up because the objection was not the point it's the heart that suppresses the truth in unrighteousness that is the point. So you can answer all those objections and then another one will come up and another one will come up and another one will come up and I hope you have reams of information about all of those different topics because eventually they're going to get to one that you don't know about and you're going to be like, well, I guess I really don't know. And they'll be like, aha, I knew it. All right? So you can answer questions all day long. Or if you look at it the other way, a person may have all kinds of objections, all kinds of questions. And if you are willing to answer those questions, but recognizing there is something more important to talk about. The house is on fire. We can worry about the paint job later, okay? Let's, let's put the fire out first. So you, you stay on point and you address their issue, which is their heart of unbelief, unwillingness to submit to God. And that's where you stay. You stay on the gospel and you stay right there in sharing with them if that person gets saved and their heart changes, guess what happens with the objections? They suddenly become irrelevant. They, they might still have that question, but they don't really care. And then after a while, they won't even have that question anymore. The questions go away because the question was a symptom, not the problem. The problem was the heart that suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And so the person you're evangelizing, the person you're sharing the gospel with, The main issue they need is not information. The main thing they need is to be called to repentance, called to faith in Christ. They need a change of heart. And so we keep our focus there. Likewise, finally, there is no excuse for the opponent of the faith. I said that all natural man suppresses the truth, that it looks different in different people. Some people suppress the truth by being very religious by, by following, uh, even maybe very loyally, devoutly, a particular religion. But their heart is still suppressing what deep down they know to be true. They may really like Buddhism. And they may go from uh, living infernally, you know, and growing up with, with nothing that they believe in to, to Buddhism. They really like that. That's their means of suppressing the truth. They may, they may go for something else. But in the end... Regardless of how religious they are or aren't. Maybe they turn to atheism. Maybe they turn to pantheism or uh, paganism. I don't know. It's all an expression of the suppression of truth. It's their way of suppressing the truth. And so, this person that you're, this opponent of the faith that you're talking with, that you're doing apologetics with, the core issue is not their information. I'm all about information. I like to read, I like to study, I like to understand that stuff. And yet, when I talk to someone from another faith and they have questions or problems with Christianity or whatever, the issue is their heart that suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. I love to answer questions and it's so easy for me and I often fall into it getting off track because I want to answer that question. And I just got derailed and we didn't get back to the gospel. We lost precious time. The problem the opponent of the faith has, the problem with, whom, uh, with the person with whom we're having this apologetics conversation is not primarily information. You can answer their information until the cows come home, and it won't matter. The issue is the heart. And so we do apologetics, but we do apologetics, and we discuss with people of, of other religions while keeping our eyes fixed on the heart of the unbeliever because if that heart changes objections go away they just become less relevant less significant and then once they understand a little better they'll see "Oh, well i had that objection but that's not really a problem but it's rooted in the change of the heart that's how people enter the kingdom of god not by a change of mind only and so we are without excuse the one who's never heard is without excuse the one We are evangelizing is without excuse. And the person we're even in religious discussion with, uh, apologetics discussion with that person is without excuse as well. And that means each of us, every one of us, has no excuse before God because we know we just don't like what we know. And so we try and cover it up and we try and hide it. We said in the beginning today that getting a firm grasp of God's wrath as the proper background to the gospel will make the gospel all the more glorious and gracious. This wrath of God is poured out against all natural man because they suppress the truth that he has given them. God, the perfect teacher, has taught them, and they've suppressed it. And so they're guilty before him, have no excuse before him, no one has an excuse before God. That's a scary place to be. That's a, that's a dark backdrop. But against that backdrop, against that backdrop of everyone not only being, being guilty, but being completely without excuse. They couldn't, they couldn't say, well, yeah, Lord, I know I did those things, but really, I never knew because they knew because He told them. That's a dark, dark backdrop. And against that backdrop we have the gospel against that backdrop of people utterly lost deserving of God's wrath into that world and to those people God sent his son to take on flesh to become human to be born as one of us and to die in our place because The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, but the righteousness of God is also revealed in the wrath of God. The degree of His righteousness determines the degree of His wrath. And how righteous is God? He's all the way righteous. And therefore, an offense against His righteousness incurs wrath that is all the way bad. A furious Powerful wrath of God, of which all mankind is deserving. And into that place, with that furious wrath of God that is unimaginably enormous, unimaginably great and awful, Jesus stepped in. And he himself bore that very wrath for his children. Knowing what that wrath would be because he knows the righteousness of God because he's God, he stood in front of the gun and he bore that wrath. And if we will trust in him, if we will put our faith in him, turn away from our sin, and trust in him for what he has done, we don't have to bear that wrath ourselves. We dodged that bullet because Jesus took it for us. And we get to stand before God free from that condemnation. Free from that wrath of God. We don't have to fear that happening to us because it was poured out on Jesus. We get to stand before him, holy and righteous in his sight, because of what Christ has done when we put our faith in him we become in Christ and that wrath of God which is so dark has been born for us and there's nothing of God's wrath left for the believer only love the wrath has been dealt with and this morning that's that's what we need to finish by talking about none of you has an excuse none of you has an excuse I don't have an excuse. And that wrath of God that we, we have offended His righteousness by suppressing the truth that He has given us and doing so in ungodliness and unrighteousness, suppressing that truth, He has every right to level the full and furious wrath of God against us. But Jesus bore that wrath stepped in that way and bore the wrath and if you will trust in him and that's the call of the gospel is for you to repent of your sins including that suppression of truth and turn to christ if you will put your faith in him that wrath is all dumped on jesus and you don't bear it and that's my prayer for you this morning that's my prayer for each of us and so that dark backdrop is is intended to be dark and it's intended to be scary. I'm not trying to scare you, but I am trying to reveal what the wrath of God is like and, and, and who deserves it. And in contrast to that, the beauty of the gospel becomes even more beautiful. Like that diamond on that little black pad. We can see how brightly it shines. We can see how precious it is. It becomes the most precious thing to us. And that's my prayer this morning, that you would trust Christ like that, that you would turn from that suppression of truth. Believe in Jesus, and you will be forgiven of your sins, and you will find him to be a perfect Savior, bearing that wrath of God, giving you his very righteousness, delivering you into God's presence as one of God's children. You can, you can do that where you sit. I did it on a baseball field. But trust Christ. Let's pray. Father, this subject is heavy and rightly so. It is good and right for us to examine the wrath of God that is the backdrop for the gospel. Father, I thank you that you have revealed to us the wrath of God in Scripture. And I thank you that you have revealed to all of mankind truths about yourself. Your eternal power and divine nature that they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so anyone who has access to anything that's been made has been taught, has been shown, and has no excuse. Father, I do pray that many in here who don't know you would trust in you right now that they would see that dark backdrop. And in in contrast to that, that they would see the beauty of the gospel, that, that Jesus would step in and bear that very wrath. And people would turn to you even this morning. They would trust in you. They would not bear the wrath of God, but they would see the, the revelation of the righteousness of God in Christ in the gospel, that they would be saved. And Father, I pray that you would take us into this world of people who perhaps are uh, ignorant of some details Uh, maybe they've never heard the gospel and yet what they do have the information they do have they reject but may we take the message of the gospel that is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes may we take that message of the gospel boldly and with great energy and love to people around us father be glorified in the salvation of sinners even in churchill county in our families. We pray this in Jesus' name.